0: Welcome to the True Voice podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through past stories from amazing people. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people with remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoy today's episode and look forward to you joining us each week. Without further ado, let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Bill Blount. Bill, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Leshawn. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, I always like to start from the beginning because, you know, we all have these amazing journeys, but it's healthy and and helpful to start from uh, where we started. Tell us where you were born and where you grew up.
1: I was born in Philadelphia and grew up here.
0: Uh, what part of town?
1: West Philly, mostly. Southwest Philly for a couple of years as a kid, but... Uh, just around the, in the 6100 block of Callahill Street, just around the corner from the original famous Jim Stakes.
0: Ah, now, I don't know that place. Break it down, and for others who may not know, what is that place?
1: Jim Steaks opened, I believe, in about 1947, after Jim came back from the war. It uh, was on North 62nd Street. People came to Jim's from all over Philadelphia, to get his steak sandwiches, Mm -hmm. his hoagies, his Italian sausages. Um, It's an institution. I began going there in uh, 1950 when we moved there. And as far as we're able to determine, I'm the oldest continuous customer of that place up until now.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. Is this the place, does it have like a neon sign or some type of signage outside?
1: It says gem Steaks on the outside, okay. yeah.
0: Now, I've been to a few steak, um, uh, Philly cheesesteak spots, uh, and I've probably been to that place, so uh, I just didn't remember the name. Um, what, what was it, do you think, that made the Philly cheesesteak such an institution for the city?
1: Well, I don't know about cheesesteaks in general, except that this is probably where they originated. I mean, with Jim's in particular, he bought in steak rounds and sliced them himself. He did not chop the meat up on the grill. Uh, He used good soft center hard crust Italian rolls. His onions were always right there being cooked at the same time. Uh, He used good cheese. When everybody went to cheese whiz, he started doing that instead of American cheese cheese. Uh, It's just a good sandwich, well-made. And I guess the topper was, uh, he had some peppers in there. It sat in a a little container in back of the counter, and they would definitely light you up. (laughs) I tended not to eat them, but it is an institution there. Now, franchise of it in a couple of places in South Street and Center City, and out in the suburbs in Springfield.
0: Got it. You definitely sound like you're an expert. Um, You can break it down. Uh, I think the one I've been to was the one on South Street, so that does sound familiar. Now, if we uh, go back to, you know, while you were growing up, um, I'm guessing entertainment back then for children was mostly hanging out with each other, playing. Um, What was the experience like, you know, in your neighborhood?
1: Well, uh, around 61st and Cali when we moved there we were kind of pi- among the pioneer black families there and in that area we played uh dead block which is checkers in the square we played marbles we played wall ball which is you know like handball we played half ball which is cutting a couple ball in half and swinging at it with a with a broomstick uh we played box ball, which is a square, and you hit the ball and, you know, try and make around round of bases. And we played a lot of touch football. That's a rotation. That was, yeah, it is. I mean, we uh, I was laughing at one of my fraternity brothers. One of the things we did to entertain ourselves in the summer was when the fire hydrant was on, we would put popsicle sticks in the water flowing to the sewer, and it was a race to see who's got through the sewer first. <laughs> Most basic form of entertainment you can have.
0: You made a ton of fun, uh, even with simple things. Oh, absolutely. Now, early uh, in life, you learned the value of hard work. You stayed at your grandmother's farm on your mother's side uh, in mm-hmm. Virginia for a few summers as a kid. Uh, you and your sisters would work uh, the livestock and plants. Now, I know that's hard work, but... Um, What was a day like on that farm for you during those summers?
1: Uh, You're usually up around 7 o'clock. You went with Granny while she was milking the cows. You fed the chickens. You fed the hogs. You helped her carry the milk back to the house. You helped her pour it into the bottles. If there were things to get out of the garden, you went with her to help them get that up. When the time came to do something in the field whatever it was you would just went along and did it and that's when the crops may have been planted or they were new they needed to be weeded you weeded them out same thing with the vegetable garden she had a wood stove in the kitchen so there was chopping wood and getting that ready to go in there um it it really got to be more difficult towards the end of the summer when the crops were being brought in
2: mm.
1: and that was uh sun up to sundown um it was hot uh i talked a little bit about feeding the pig uh you got a five gallon bucket with water and garbage and everything in there but uh the pig pen was about 30 yards down from the house so you know i started out early with my sister carrying that down there uh, chopping wood is work. It's not like we had the sharpest axes and so forth. But uh, when it was just my sister and I there on a farm, a lot of time my entertainment was a baseball and a bat, mm-hmm. and I would play fungo from one side to the other with nobody <laughs> else to play with. But it was cool. It was good, and I come well, to understand it was hard work.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that, and. What was your grandmother doing when you guys weren't there? Who was she, was she running this place by herself?
1: She ran the place by herself. It was basically about 67 acres. Wow. I think it wasn't all productive. She had sure. a big uh, cow pasture, uh, but she also taught school for 33 mm-hmm. years in a one-room schoolhouse. And she was... I think every black child in Charlotte County, Virginia, until the time that she retired in about 1952, went through her classroom. Uh, wow. She was quite a lady. What was her name? Her name was Celine Wilson Williams.
0: Nice. No, she that's definitely, definitely some hard work for Granny balancing a full career teaching all those students and running a 67 with, acre farm.
1: With a small child and no husband and a dependent mother.
0: Goodness. I mean, that's a that's a benchmark for work ethic right there. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, now on that farm was one of the first times, uh, or at least over those summers, was one of the first times you faced racism. Uh, you were helping uh, a white guy harvest some tobacco And Mm -hmm. he didn't pay you the same as the white kids. And he didn't necessarily give your grandmother the same respect she gave him. How did you process that as a young adult?
1: Well, uh, the the whole thing about helping him in a farm, he was a tenant farmer. He was her tenant. The thing about. no, wait, real
0: quick. So make sure I understand that. So he's paying her. Okay, got it.
1: He was a sharecropper. He's a white guy. Wasn't a bad guy. But I think what you termed as disrespect wasn't really intended to be that. It was mm. a time and a place where people who were white called black people by the first name and people who were black called white people by Mr. or miss or whatever. Uh, okay. But I don't think that he's, uh, he's given us 50 cents for being in there from uh, dawn to dust picking tobacco. I don't know that I would call it racism, Uh, We were the only children there. His kids were not there. Okay. But the other adults who were there, there was my granny, my mother, and two or three other hands along with them. And I'm sure that they got more than 50 cents. My mother and my granny got nothing but, you know, profit was split between him and my grandmother. And part of uh, his compensation was he lived on a house on a property free of rent.
0: So was that a pretty common structure back then where someone would um, kind of trade uh, accommodations and, and land um, if they couldn't afford yes. it themselves?
1: Yes, but the races were generally reversed.
0: Yeah. So um, that was kind of unique. Why, um, wh- how did that come about?
1: My mother's father, my maternal grandfather, Jesse Wilson, was a businessman and he had been a shopkeeper, an undertaker, Uh, ran his own farm and so forth. So he had some means and he owned the farm where my grandmother was. He married her, was his second marriage. I think he was in his late fifties and she was in her early thirties. So she had land, she owned the land. And the fact was that she needed somebody to work it. And he apparently—I don't know how they got together, but that—but they did. I mean, mm-hmm. it was, uh, and they shared losses as well as profits. One year, there was a hailstorm two or three days before they were to harvest the tobacco, and it was cigar tobacco. You got holes in the leaves; they're worthless. Mm. So that whole crop was was shot.
0: You know? Wow, where did you learn? Um, I mean, did you learn the the you know? the dynamics of those types of things where, you know, you got holes in the, in the tobacco, you can't use it. Um, was that just spending time on the farm and picking that up? Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Now back in Philadelphia, you know, let's say this point, this point it's probably in the fifties. Um, what, what's Philadelphia like? Like what's the, the energy, the visuals, paint a picture.
1: Philadelphia is a place that at that point in time, was not particularly segregated over the working class neighborhoods. When we moved into Hill Street in 1950, it was predominantly white. But as black people came in, the commonality we had was belief in hard work, the American dream, and not much money. So it was not hard for us based on race, with some exceptions. Uh, I live in the 6100 block of Callahill. Up the street at 65th and Callahill was a playground. But between 63rd and 65th, there was no black folks. And in the late 50s, there started to be some resentment of black kids coming up to play in that playground. And a couple of times I got run back, you know, back over there. But a couple of times we ran some of them back over there, too. So, you know, <laughs>
2: right.
1: it, wasn't really, it wasn't really overt racism. I, I can't say that.
2: Yeah. And
1: the fact that my mom babysat a lot of the kids when she was at home. She helped people in the neighborhood. She was a very giving person. And in the schools at that time, half of my classmates were white. Hmm. So... I didn't experience really overt racism. Again, with an exception. You may be too young to remember American Bandstand. I remember the concept,
2: yep. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. Bandstand, the original, was located about uh, four blocks from where I went to high school. Okay. And when it started, and I believe 1955 or 56, we all would go there, you know, But the kids who were allowed in were all the white kids. A black kid never went into bandstand until after it became American bandstand. And they started to bring in black entertainers and black R&B people.
0: Gotcha. Was this the Dick Clark show?
1: It was the Dick Clark show before it was a Dick Clark show. Dick Clark was the host of American bandstand.
0: Got it. And bandstand
1: here before that. Um we uh you know, we we had parties, house parties, and everybody went. Um there was no particular interracial affairs going on. We weren't we're kinda wiser than that. Um I would say that I had a good a good relatively carefree time in the fifties. I went to high school. I, I got a, a job. I found ways to make money. Um, I found a fraternity that has helped shape my life in a, in a very strong way. Um, if there's a downside is that, uh, I was maybe a little too smart for my own good in a lot of ways. <laughs> when, I, when I was in high school, I didn't work hard, you know, first semester, second semester, yeah. third semester, I'd work hard to pull my grains up. Uh, And that was the wrong thing, because when I got to college, that didn't work anymore, and I wasn't ready for that. Um, As as far as friends were concerned, Philadelphia is a funny place in that you could have friends all over the city, and you were friends. You went to the same parties. Some of you went to the same churches. There were teenage social events then that were big throughout the city. There were, there was my fraternity, a few others. There was a group called Jack and Jill and so forth. We'd have dances at some of the you know, local places and so forth. So you met people from other places. Occasionally there'd be some rowdiness, but you know, it was good.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, um just kind of hitting on those moments. That's, uh, you know, it's never idyllic, but this sounds like a pretty great experience. Mm-hmm. Now, as you got, um, a little older, you say you were picking up some jobs. I know, uh, you know, I think you're a little bigger than some of your peers. You use that to your advantage. You get a job at a warehouse loading timber, uh, in yep. 56, making a yeah. dollar 50 an hour, oh, a dollar an hour, dollar an hour,
1: dollar an hour. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, what'd you learn working that job?
1: It's hard, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> At the time, I probably was five foot eleven, and probably weighed about one hundred and seventy pounds, which mm-hmm. was big for a fourteen-year-old. Right. But the guys who I who helped me get the job were seniors in high school; they were both eighteen. But they said, "You know, you're big enough. You can do the work." And I guess I learned that you you can't give up. I mean, you just can't. You gotta stay with it i will tell you that a uh a two by 12 piece of lumber that's 16 or 18 or 20 feet long is tough to put up on a stack of lumber that's 12 feet high but that was the job and if you wanted the money you had to do the job and you had to be able to keep up the warehouse was not heated uh it had four or five naked bulbs hanging down the boxcars were not heated or cooled, so you had to take a light in to be able to see. And the boxcars, when they came in, usually were stacked within a foot of the top of the door. So generally, our task was to empty a boxcar in two days. Wow! So you were humping. But when you got That's home, the you were sore, but you got paid at the end of every day.
2: There you
0: go.
1: <laughs>
0: not bad for a high school job. Now, you said yourself, uh, you know, you had uh, a strategy of, uh, you know, not going all the way in for high school, doing just enough. Um, but you also said something, something that's important. Um, you met... Um, or I guess you were part of a fraternity. As I understand it, there was mm-hmm. a, uh, the first black medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. He right. sponsored 40 of you uh, yeah. and, and formed this frat and helping you understand you know importance of friendship and support. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were part of that frat, as you said. Um, how did you get included in that group?
1: Well, the group was founded in 1951. And in 19, when I went to high school in 1956, all of the guys with these yellow hats, had all of the girls around them. Okay. And I was younger than most high school students at 14. So they just kind of, you know. But then I got to be friends with a couple of them. And they said, well, you know, why don't you pledge? Why don't you pledge? Well, the following in 1957, or the end of 1956, I pledged. And the the sponsor, John Williams, was a capitalist. And he thought that becoming a member of fraternity should be rigorous. And while I don't think, in fact, I know that he didn't do as much as some of the college fraternities did, it was rigorous and, and there were guys who did not make it. But some of the lessons we learned were about friendships, but also they were about citizenship, they were mm. about self-responsibility. They were about achieving things. And being there to help those who are less fortunate than you, even if they were not exactly your close friend. And that's kind of stayed with me most of my life.
0: That's a great opportunity. Have you seen uh, the concept of a high school fraternity in other places?
1: There are others. Uh, We know that there was one that I found looking around the internet that was actually in the Philippines. Hmm. There was one other in Philadelphia when, during the same time uh, I joined, but it's no longer in existence. But uh, the only other one, there was a Spike Lee film that had a fraternity in it called Alpha Phi Beta and the colors were blue and white. But that's the only ones that, that I found.
0: Right. That's, that's super interesting. Now, you take some of those lessons. Uh, you go into college. You start at Lincoln University for a bit. Then you switch to computer school where you were learning to program uh, an IBM mainframe computer. What, what type of training is that?
1: It's the same type of training that I don't know if you saw Hidden Figures, mm-hmm. but it was the same computer that they used. It was an IBM 7090 punch card driven machine. Uh, finishing that school, I was second in the class, and that was one of the first times I ran into very overt racism. Hmm. I couldn't find a job. There was numerous insurance companies. There were banks and so forth. Three or four people who were way down in the class got hired right away. I couldn't get a job. Uh, You know, it it was nothing there. I I ended up uh, going to work in the post office because that was civil service. And, wow. uh, you know, it was okay for a year. It, uh, it paid pretty well. I was able to sustain myself. Uh, but then I got laid off from that. And uh, I knew that I needed to do something. My draft classification was 1A. So after a lot of I jobs in uh, September of 1962, I joined the Army. Okay. And I figured I got to do something.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, both unfortunate, uh, but also, you know, a, a great testament of you saying, hey, I'm going to figure this out, find a solution. Now, while you were in um, the Army, what was, uh, well, maybe not the specific experience, but how did the experience in general uh, change you, shape you?
1: Well, it's different experiences that shape me different ways. Mm hmm. Uh, One of the things you find out is you can make decisions that you regret, but that don't mean you can change the outcome. If I had had the opportunity to get out of the army after two weeks, I might have, but (laughs) didn't have that opportunity. The second thing that I found out is how much farther you can go and how much more self-reliant you had to be, uh, you know, to get through it. I did find, Racism in the military. Wow. Um, there was one incident that involved the military and my group, per se. I was a bag sergeant. I said, okay, we're going to clean this place up. Uh, you guys know what to do. I went out to do something. And when I came back, the place wasn't clean. Mm-hmm. So uh, I said, okay, you know, get up clean it again. And I went in my room. And I looked outside later and it was clean. When I came out in the morning, there was a noose hanging in front of my my door. Wow. And I was furious. Mm-hmm. So we fell out the first call and I took off my jacket and my cap with my rank insignia and, and said, all of those of you who put that noose in front of my neck, my door, step out here now we're going to finish this. And I don't care how many of you, you are. Hmm. I could not get any takers. Uh, The other one previous to that had to do with uh, when I was in school and training, I was a class leader, and I told a couple of guys to clean the latrine upstairs. And One of them said to me, my daddy told me don't take no orders from niggers.
2: Mm.
1: And he turned to go down the steps, so I kicked him. And um, he, (laughs) he went to the orderly room and told the sergeant there what happened truthfully. Okay. Uh, Sergeant called me over and I told him, yeah, what happened? So, our punishment was I was confined to barracks for a week. He had to shovel a path of snow around the regiment, which was a long way and it was still snowing. Um, I think, aside from that, I was assigned as control, as part of control for communications. the second march from Selma to Montgomery. That was kind of interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. The announcement had been the Alabama National Guard were the troops who were there. The Alabama National Guard was actually billeted in a hangar out at Gunther Air Force Base. The troops that you saw on the street were either those mainly of the 503rd Military Police Battalion and the 1387th Police Battalion, who were first-line strike troops. Hmm. Strategically, it was a great move because you can't ask Alabama National Guardsmen to do something to their neighbors, okay? That ain't going to work. All right. Um, I think there, there is a lot that happened there that will never be told. Um, what I observed on my own when there were people who were trying to figure out ways to attack those camps at night, who were armed and who meant business. And a few times I went out with the MPs and we could you know, keep an eye on them. Um, and there were some things that were tough. There was a, a woman in the main street leading up to the Capitol was a white woman. And she asked the uh, owner of a store, can I, my little boy use your bathroom? and he hit her with a pick handle. Goodness. Um, on, on that Friday night before they came in, Mrs. Luizzo was killed. She was shot and killed taking a guy home. Hmm. Uh, walking around in the crowd, there was a guy with a stormtrooper's uniform carrying a sign and said, white men, wake up. Niggas going to get your money and your women. Um, there were some guys who were up on the Florida the federal building who had painted a, a doll of Lyndon Johnson's face black and they had the sign hang the thing hanging out the window and they're shouting at Hello niggas, hello I, mm-hmm. I got I got to go upstairs and, and rack the bolt on my M fourteen and tell them they need to take day off. That was kind of satisfying. <laughs> but the the when I left there and I was driving back with my boss to uh, to Fort Benning. It kept going through my mind: How can these people hate people of color so much when so many of us, including me, have fought for this country? So right, yeah. Uh, the uh, the the one thing that happened. There was a couple other things. When I first got there, some of the guys from the uh, Signal Battalion, other guard, came up and introduced themselves. And one of them said, we got four color boys and we like them. And my immediate reaction, you know, internally was, you know, but I said, oh, yeah, that's good. But before I left, the chief signal officer was a bell exec. And he said, if I ever came south and wanted a job, come see him. And the chief communications sergeant said, if I ever wanted a job or wanted to join the Guard, come see him. And they gave me the Alabama National Guard shoulder patch and a little metal pin. Ironically, it's the Stars and Bars. I certainly never wore it. But that's the, you know, the things. And there was no... There were only three or four black officers on Fort Benning. So one of the highlights of one of my days was I was over near the PX and I'm walking in the PX and out comes this tall, light-skinned brother with a lieutenant's bar. I don't know whether it was the first or second. And the name tag, Powell. And I was delighted to say, good afternoon, sir. And he saluted and said, good afternoon, soldier. It was Colin Powell. Wow! So you know, it, it me was interesting.
0: Yeah, that's a that's an amazing set of experiences. Now, while you're in there, you're going to you know keep investing in your education. You go to um, enroll in a program to get some additional computer programming training. You accidentally sign up for clerk typing school. No,
1: no, no, exactly. no, 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 no! I oh, didn't do this.
0: Oh, Oh, you didn't do this. Somebody no, else did the this.
1: Recruiting sergeant did that.
0: Okay, break it down for me.
1: Well, I wanted to go to Fort Monmouth where they said t- computer training, which was Career Group 71. No, 74. He put down Career Group 71, which is military administration, i.e., clerk typist. And I was furious when I found out about that. But there was nothing I could do about it. The upside is, though, I never learned to type worth a damn. <laughs> I did learn a lot about administration, uh, training manuals, how to put plans together, and so forth, and and it helped me along the line.
0: Wow! All right, so he he had a a clerical error, and he put you in a clerical role. Exactly. That's fascinating.
1: But in hindsight, no. I got to tell you that probably may have been a blessing, not
2: a yeah. curse.
0: Yeah. No, I hear that. Now, after you get out of the military, you work for a telephone company, and then you mm-hmm. get a job at GE. Uh, yeah. You wanted more influence over decision-making. You eventually get promoted to a high-level executive job there uh, in HR. Not, and not at GE. Oh, oh where, uh,
1: where was this at? How was that? Control Data.
2: Ah, uh, okay. Now, uh, what did they that, do?
1: Control Data at that time was a computer manufacturer, mm-hmm. and it was out in Valley Forge, um, uh which is 16 miles from where I was living. I had a wife and a new baby, and I went out there and I started in production control because that's what I'd done in G. In 1972, I had been kind of trying to advocate for the rights of minorities and women from that job. And in 1972, I was asked if I was interested in coming into personnel as a personnel administrator. I was skeptical, but I take risk, so I did, and that was where my career in human resources got started. I was a, a recruiter. I did a lot of interviewing. Um, not long after I got into that role, I was asked to join some training cadre at Control Data, teaching a course called Minority Group Dynamics. Minority Group Dynamics was born out of a bad experience of sending high-performing white managers to minority, predominantly minority uh, manufacturing facility, and it had a lot of problems. So Minority Group Dynamics sought to teach white male managers and managers in general what the real feelings of minorities were about them. As citizens in the United States, and how they had treated us, and for most, it was the first time they ever heard it. Mm. It was direct. Um, it occasionally became confrontational, but it was educating, and it did make a difference. Uh, it was difficult to become an instructor in that program, and what I did, and I loved it. I did it from seventy-two until I left the company in 1980. And I felt as though I could not go further in control data unless I relocated. And that was not in the cards for me and my wife. Our parents are here, they're getting older and so forth. I uh, ended up going to CertainTeed Corporation, which was uh, a uh, building materials manufacturer. And I stayed there from 19... 19- Uh, In 1981 until September of 82, uh, I stepped on somebody's toes inadvertently. I had been given a job of uh, finding a home for a senior uh, administrative professional who'd been with the company for 20-some years with a spotless record. Her boss was let go. Her new boss was coming from somewhere else, and he had a, a clerical person who was 24 and really cute and so forth, and he wanted to bring her. Well, I couldn't find a job for this other person. And at that time, I was my boss was out of town, so I was reporting to his boss, and he asked me, how is that going? And I said, look, it's not going well. She's well-paid, she's got a spotless record. Frankly, the person they're trying to bring over does not have a spotless record. She's 24, this woman is 47. That's a prima facie age discrimination case if ever I saw one. And I don't know who told him he could do that. Mm-hmm. He was a person who told him he could do that. Ah. So three four months later, I was gone. Uh, I went to work for Wells Fargo alarm services, which was a service industry job. I'd never been in a service industry job. you have
0: been working mostly manufacturing
1: manufacturing. Yeah. yeah. So it was different. It was very different. Um, it was easy for me to sense when I came there that the people I was working with had never worked with a black person as a peer. Hmm. But they were not hostile, not the ones in my immediate group. There were some who did not like black folks. And really, you know, one morning I was going up the elevator. The CEO got on. And he said, who the hell are you? And I said, I'm Bill Blount. I'm the new guy in, in uh, human resources. <clears throat> <laughs> just, I mean, wow, um, we didn't have that directly affected me much in mm-hmm. the way of discrimination, but I found some things as the chief EEO person. Cases of discrimination I had to defend. Um, we wrote a manual and some things. Let me back back to, backtrack to Certainty for a minute, if it's okay. Okay, when I got to Certainty. There had been a, a federal discrimination case against the Savannah facility where it had been found in federal court to have deliberately discriminated against people of color in their workforce. Hmm. None of them were in administrative jobs or supervisory jobs. All uh, all of them who were there, and there were a few worked in the felt mill. Uh, I went down with a lawyer and the the VP of HR for that group, which is called Shelter Materials. They made roofing. And they got down there and said, well, you know, we know, you didn't really mean to do that. You know that it was just a slip up and we know it's not going to happen again. Whoa. Mm. Let me tell you all something. You did it. You definitely meant to do it. And I'm telling you, if it happens again, somebody ain't going to be here. Mm-hmm. And if you got a problem with that, let me tell you to call my boss. Well, this is something these folks have never experienced before. First of all, it's one of them Yankees, one of them damn Negro Yankees, them colored boys. Secondly, I wasn't talking to them like I was afraid of them. And that's, so one time when I was there dealing with another thing, with affirmative action, I had met a young woman and I gave her my card. and said, if you ever have a problem, you know, give me a call. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect to hear from her. A couple months later, she called me. I said, what's the matter? She said, well, I got promoted. I'm in the felt mill now. I said, okay. And she said, but my problem is I got a urinary tract infection and I have to go to the bathroom a lot. I said, okay. And Mr. Cecil, who was the shift superintendent, said, I have to go to the office because there ain't no men's room in the felt room. And she said, I have to go a lot. I can't, I don't want to run outside in the woods. It's about 100 yards to the office building. I got on a plane the next morning early. Didn't Mm -hmm. have a chance to tell anybody. Went to Savannah, got the plant manager and the shift superintendent in the office, and I was hot. I was really hot and -hmm. probably should have cooled off some. But the superintendent was maybe five foot six or seven and weighed 140 pounds in a wet overcoat. And I, six foot three, probably weighed around 230. And I got right in his face and I said, let me tell you something. You say there ain't no men's room, no ladies room in the felt mill? The ladies room is any room she wants to go in. And on top of that, when she goes in, you're going to have somebody make sure that nobody's in there. And that gonna stand outside until she comes out. And if I ever get a call from her again, I will be back to fire your ass right away. Is that clear? And, uh, 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 is it clear? Yes. Yes. And I turned to the flash manager. I said, you got that? Yeah. Uh, you didn't have that? Yeah, I did. Because obviously <laughs> you ain't doing what your goddamn job
2: was. Right.
1: When I got back, uh, I went right back. My boss said, uh, our boss wants to see you. Okay, he said. I understand you went to Savannah. Yeah, he said. I understand that you told Cecil and Joe that uh, if this happened again, they would get fired. Yeah, I did. And he said, "Well, and then it both cracked up. They said, "I would love to been a fly on the wall when that happened."
2: <laughs> he said, "I'm not happy
1: you went without telling me," but you know. So, uh, I left Certainty and went to Wells Fargo. There were things that happened there that were typical, but it gave me the opportunity to learn about a new kind of environment. Service is very different. Expectations for customers who are being served is very important. I had some issues there with a new boss that I got. Uh, He was not a bigot as far as I was concerned racially, but he had a problem with people who did not have a college degree becoming, you know, up in the lane and when i could see that uh that wasn't going nowhere i started asking around and i got a job at what was in blue cross of greater philadelphia in center city as the uh, employee relations manager that was in uh, october of 1986. the issue with blue cross was basically as far as i could see inconsistency and in the weight of human resources You know, the new name for personnel dealt with disciplinary and, and other procedures that they should control. So there were surprises when I took the job. First of all, they never told me that there was a union there in the salespeople until I had to go sit down and deal with them. The other thing was this was an old company. And every department kind of ran things the way that they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that needed to change. So I had the benefit of being trained to control data very well about what you do with documenting processes. Okay? One of the first things I did was wrote a process, a disciplinary action process, which we call corrective action and all of the steps were outlined, and what you had to do to discipline, including approval from human resources. I did the same thing with the people within the department about hiring. This is what I wanna see from you, okay? Because that's an employee relations function, of all sorts. Is that? Um, And it was not a piece of cake. It was not a walk in the park. I would walk around and talk to people because that's what I did. Right, right. I learned that way. And people would look at me and say, Well, you know, what's what's up with you? Nothing. I'm just trying to learn about the place. Can you tell me who you are and what you do and you know, what gets on your nerves and so forth? I promise I won't tell nobody. What I learned from the rank and file was they thought that HR was always on the side of management. What I learned from management was they thought that HR was always on the side of the associates. (laughs) So that told me inconsistency was the thing. Um, One of the first things that I ran into was a department where the department director would only hire people from inside who had no attendance problems, no discipline problems, and performance ratings were always above expectations. And so she turned down all these folks who were internal applicants. Well, one of the recruiters came to me and said, hey, look, most of the people she's turning down are minorities. And I said, okay, bring me the records of the attendance records, the discipline records of everybody in her department. Well, of course, when I looked, there was a disparity there. Now, this woman had been there for a zillion years. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out How do I get this done without getting into a war? So I went to her VP and I said, look, here's the deal. Here's the problem. This can't stand this way. Okay. I don't want to fight with anybody. I said, you and I understand what our requirements are. And, you know, so can you handle it? Well, he did. She went back to next opening to start a reviewing things and so forth. But when I would walk by her and say hello, she wouldn't answer me. Hmm.
0: She was still holding that in.
1: She was holding that in. One of the funny things was that uh, I met a woman there who was a supervisor manager who was the former girlfriend of one of my college classmates. And I said, Evelyn, you know, I've been here like ten months. Tell me, what's what's the scoop? What's going on in there? And she said, well, they said that first of all, you are married and you have eight children. I said, that's not true, I don't have any children. And that she like white women. And I said, what? And I said, Evelyn, she said, look, don't worry about it. She said, Blue Cross's grapevine has its own truths. And eventually they stand on their own or they die on their own, and so. And so, was to change the interactions and the cultural perspectives between human resources and the rest of the place. Uh, yeah. And I got uh, – that started in 86, and it was not a piece of cake. We had to deal with the uh, union. Eventually, my boss had told me we need to make the union unnecessary – and over a course between eighty six and uh, and ninety three, I guess it was, we did that, and they decertified. We also did a lot, a lot of positive things. We bought in a new human resource information system. Um, you know, it just—I got to be a senior director, uh, not just because of. of Skills with EEO or affirmative action, but I have good people skills and I have good administrative skills, and I don't back down real easy. So that's a great
0: combination of. of, uh, You
1: (laughs) know, it's it's not meant to be macho. It's that you, in order to be successful, you have to be an advocate for yourself and your own ideas,
2: Hmm.
1: and sometimes I had to be tenacious. As I said in my book, sometimes I was confrontational and sometimes I was downright nasty. Mm
2: -hmm. But
1: you have to get your point out there. Um, I got, you know, I got some things accomplished that had not been accomplished here. And then in uh, 19... I guess it was about 1997, I was asked to help out at one of these subsidiaries because they had lost their HR of AP. And I ultimately decided to do that because it was a chance to run my own show and to prove, to bring them along to where I had brought lacrosse along.
0: Right. As we're wrapping up, I wanted to make sure we got the name of your book. Uh, you wrote a book on, you know, your experience as a black man in corporate America and uh, kind of one of the key lessons you would share.
1: The book is called Recollections of a Rarity A Black Man and Corporate Human Resources. Um, one of the things that I read or well, some of the things I read a long time ago. And I'll tell you what a couple of them are. And one is in the book. It came from uh, Max Robinson
2: mm-hmm.
1: when he talked to the Howard graduates. And the paraphrase that he said, never sell yourself. Because when you sell yourself, you have nothing left of value. Uh. Um, sometimes, and I hadn't seen that earlier on ever. Sometimes when things got rocky, I would, you know, what the hell am I doing here? In 1970-something, there was a recording made called The Desert Dorada. And it says, you are a child of the universe. As much in the stars and the trees, you have a right to be here. And even though it may not be clear to you, somehow the universe is unfolding as it should. So my thoughts are... When you're feeling uncomfortable because you're the only one there, you belong there. Okay? You belong there. Don't ever go in and think that you know more than everybody else if you don't have all the facts. Uh If you don't have all the facts, somebody's going to nail you. As a person of color or a woman, do not assume everything is about discrimination. Okay? Okay. Many people, men, white folks, and so forth, do not understand how they are discriminating against you. And I guess one of the most important things is don't forget that you didn't get where you are without help from somebody else. And if you have some opportunity to pull somebody up or push them up, you got to do that.
0: That's a perfect place for us to end today. Uh, Thanks a lot for your time, for joining us and sharing your story, Bill. That was fantastic. Um, I want to make sure we have uh, uh, the show notes, uh, a link or something to your book. Is it available online anywhere?
1: It's available on Amazon.com.
0: All right. We'll make sure it's in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, Thank everyone. Uh, As usual, if you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please reach out at hello at voice.com. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time.
2: This is True Voice.